Tonight is April 1st. Somebody told me Chuck Norris's calendar did not have April 1st. It goes from March 31st to April 2nd. Because Chuck Norris is not a fool for a day for anyone. <laughs> he also does not do push-ups. He pushes the earth down. Makes coffee by chewing the beans and boiling, boiling them with his rage. And tonight we're here to honor one greater than Chuck Norris. That's right. Amen. Did y'all have fun worshiping Jesus today? Yes. I did too. It was literally just what the doctor ordered. Now I have uh, I have told you in the past. By the way, tonight our message is heavenly hierarchy. This is the second in a series called the Heavenly Host. Last Wednesday was our first, and it was pre-Adamite. I told you that we must be crazy to even talk about these things from the pulpit. It'd be a lot easier um, to just preach salvation. But I know almost every one of you in here, and if you were not saved by now, probably not a lot else I can do for you. You need to see the King. I'm actually pretty confident of the fruit that I see in your lives, and I'm excited about that. So I thought it was time to expand our horizons, to begin to get a sense of what is going on around us in the spiritual realms. Uh, as I discussed the pre-Adamite thing with you, I don't want uh, to run it in the ground. I don't want to go back over it all again. I do want to hit a few highlights for you. In the first chapter of Genesis, there were a couple words. Bara and Asa. Two Hebrew words, one of which meant to create. That's bara, Strong's number 1254. And then Strong's number 6213, Asa, which meant to make. This pointed to the idea that in the six days of creation, some things were created for the very first time. Other things were made from something that was existent. We looked at the word translated was in Genesis 1-2. Now the earth was formless and void. And I told you that it was the Hebrew word Haya, like Haya, how are you? And that word is translated many, many times in the Bible as became. It's very possible to read the second verse of Genesis as now the earth had become or was becoming or became formless and void. We looked probably most importantly at a couple items. There was darkness, there was water, and looked like the scene of a judgment before we ever began God's creative process called day one. This becomes important because when man is put on the earth in Genesis 1.28, he's given a task. He is told to subdue the earth. You don't have to subdue something that is not resistant. There was already a tree of knowledge of good and evil indicating evil was existent before man was put here. All of this will lead to one place. But something that I need to remind you of from last week is not what happened here before uh, a pre-Adamite flood. It's not whether or not you agree with me that there's a gap between 1-1 one, one and 1-2. One, it's none of those things. It's that man's purpose as stated in Genesis 1-28 was to multiply the presence of God on the planet and to bring the earth in subject to God. This is the same thing that was repeated to Noah when he got off the boat. Be fruitful, multiply, and bring the earth into subjection. It is what Corinthians 15 teaches the purpose of Christ is. Reading it in the 20s in Corinthians 15, it speaks of everything being given to Jesus and Jesus putting 
all things into subjection and then handing the kingdom over to the Father. All of this points to something. There is a problem on the planet and man was supposed to be part of the solution. Where man has failed, Jesus as a man succeeded. All of this becomes important because we're pointing towards a direction about the calling of man to bring everything into subjection. Well, tonight, I wanted to cover something called the heavenly hierarchy. You had homework. Does anybody remember what the homework was? No. Brandon. Hebrews 8.5. Hebrews 8.5. Anybody want to read it? While you turn there, I will continue to speak. Let me know when someone is there. Good. Read it. Read it loud. They serve in a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. Why Moses was born when he was about to build the tabernacle. Okay. That's okay. We're going to read more of that. I asked you to read something that said that what is on earth is a copy and a shadow of something that exists in the heavenlies. We're going to expand on that idea tonight. And the reason that we are is, first off, understanding that the earth may be billions of years old, but there was a point in time in which God put man on it and numbered the days. He recreated it as we know it now. And He put in place a timetable for man to bring everything in heaven and on earth under God's control. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. The second Adam is a term for Jesus. This is important. When we begin thinking about what is in the heavenly realms, the Sunday schoolish idea that uh, we grew up with is that there is a God, there is a devil, there are angels and there are demons. And we don't think anything beyond that. And then you begin to extrapolate when forced to about demons being fallen angels and Satan possibly having been an archangel. We're going to cover every bit of that in messages to come. I want to talk to you tonight about a heavenly hierarchy that is actually definable in the Scripture. My goal is not to teach you about origins of Satan tonight. It's not to address angels or archangels. It's simply to talk about what is in the heavenlies. And what begins to happen as you do this is your mind begins to be opened up to the idea that there is more than you have been told. And it becomes important because when we're children, it's okay to think like children. But as we become adults, we must mature in the kingdom. Turn with me then to Exodus 25. You're going to be somewhere around the ninth verse. Eighth verse. Keeping in mind that Hebrews 8.5 already reiterates the idea that what is on earth, meaning a tabernacle and a temple and a priesthood, is a shadow of something that is existent in the heavenlies. When you have closed your eyes and envisioned God's domain, His kingdom, have you ever envisioned a tabernacle or a temple and a priesthood there? And then, doesn't it beg a question, what would one be doing there? In Exodus 25, starting in verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me. The sanctuary that Moses made was not for the people of Israel. It was for God. The people of Israel got to participate in it, but it was made for God. And I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. There was an exact pattern Moses was to follow. This is why the Bible gives numbers of inches. 
by the way, cubits do break down into inches. But in any case, it's why exact measurements were given in very ornate detail. Around the 40th voice, he, verse, he repeats the same thing. He says, uh, 39, A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. The point being that the prophet of God saw into the heavenlies and something was shown to him. What he had made on the earth was representative of something that was in the heavens. Well, what was there on earth? There was a priesthood. There was a multi-chambered tabernacle and later temple. There was an altar. There was uh, worshipers. There was all kinds of things. And it was made according to a pattern that Moses had seen. Something that the writer of Hebrews says, on earth we're seeing simply a shadow of what was there. How many times when you have envisioned the heavenlies, have you given any thought to the fact that there could even be a priesthood there? And then why? As we move through this, I thought that we would probably raise more questions than answers. But I want to know, I, I want you to know, I have no fear of that. We don't have to have the answers. My goal is to begin you on a path of study that causes you to seek God and earnestly crave the answers and we'll rejoice in them together. There are some things that I can teach you that are absolutely definite. Tonight, many of the things that we're going to do is simply say, how long have you been a believer? Have you ever read this before? Have you ever noticed this or thought about this? And my hope is simply to challenge you that there is a hierarchy in the heavens that you may never have considered before. And maybe the doctrines handed down to us were entirely too simplistic and were assumed by a medieval church that neither had your best interest nor God's in mind. They simply wanted to extort money from people. Something in which I have no interest in doing. Turn with me to X, uh, Isaiah 6. Now, if you are not a Matrix fan... You may never have heard of the word seraph. If you are a Matrix fan, you know that it was a little Asian guy who was fantastic at Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. We are not discussing the Matrix or Kung Fu. We're going to be in Isaiah 6, and I want to describe to you something that Isaiah saw. The word seraph, sometimes if your Bible it may say seraphim. There's two ways to say seraph, plural. Seraphim is more than one seraph. And the NIV just goes a whole other route for some reason and says seraphs uh, with an S. Um, we're going to start in Isaiah 6. The words seraphs only appear in one place translated seraphs in English in all of your Bibles. And it would be good to read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. He did not say he saw angels that were called seraphs. In fact, nowhere in the Bible are seraphs called angels. Angel can be one of those words that because it means servant, it's fine with me if you lump every heavenly thing into the category of servant or angel, you just need to know that the Bible does not do that. The Bible describes something called angels. Among angels, there's something called an ark or high-ranking angel. Then there are these other things, among others, called seraphs. Nowhere, never, at any time, 
are seraphs called angels? So if you want to simplify this by coming to me and saying, Eric, seraphs are simply angels, just realize, number one, I've heard that, and number two, there is no scriptural justification for it. They're called seraphs. Seraphs is not necessarily a title. It may be a description of function. As we read this, these things have six wings. And they were calling to one another. How do you name something in Hebrew? By its function. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Why three holies? Why not four? Why not two? Why is three such a good number when speaking of the Godhead? Well, that's interesting. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. That sounds like a pretty powerful thing, huh? Not a little naked baby with wings as medieval art depicts this, huh? Sounds like something that would get your attention. Hmm? At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. His response when he sees this is complete, utter, personal devastation. Something about the presence of these things and seeing God's glory filling a temple brought him to a place where he was utterly crushed. And listen to what he says. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King. This word here, Lord Almighty, is El Shaddai, the Almighty God. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Interesting. He has feet, he has hands, and he has wings. Which he had taken with tongs from the altar. He didn't dare touch the coal with his hands. He used tongs, but then he put the coal in his hand. Doesn't that strike you as a bit odd? Mm -hmm. Me too. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Plural. Us indicates what the Bible has indicated from the beginning. God acts as a singular entity, but He is multifaceted. Elohim is one of those words that actually means that. When the Bible says the Lord God is Ehad, He's one, it means that He can be multiple and unified all at the same time. This is how it's called a sevenfold spirit or a singular God, a many-faceted God. Having said that, what a strange depiction and what a strange thing to see. Isaiah saw into the heavenlies and he saw something that he called seraphs. Well, seraphs, there is no good translation for. The closest couple words that you can get to it in Hebrew are a word named seraph, S-A-R-A-P, which means burning or fiery one. Or in Aramaic, shafra, which means high and exalted one. Both sound pretty uh, accurate, don't they? Now, I said this was the only place this shows up in English in your Bible. Isn't it interesting that these words for seraph show up many more times in Hebrew? And our translators have translated it a different way. I want to tell you something before we move from this scripture. If you're going to define these beings, which you may never have thought of before tonight, you need to look at the functions that they perform. 
It says one called to the other. It speaks of them being on either side of the Lord's train. It sounds as if these things hang between heaven and earth and facilitate some kind of communication about God's holiness. Another reason you might come to that conclusion is the first thing Isaiah felt and saw was, I am unworthy to speak. I am a man of unclean lips. And who fixed it for him? The seraphs, uh, of course, working in God's authority. Something about these creatures has to do with, at least in this account, communication and holiness. This is the only time that they're mentioned in this way. There are some other very similar creatures we're going to get to. But I wanted to show you a few other things. Turn with me to Numbers 21. Is anybody reading something other than the NIV in here? Yes. I know what you got. And what, what you got? NLT. NLT. Anybody got a New American Standard? I have uh, the uh, New King James. And the okay. Uh, hang on to your New King James. You hang on to that New American Standard. I'm going to get you to read a few things. Now, one of the things that I uh, have always applauded about the NIV is that they have done their very best to balance a fine line between a literal interpretation and the actual intended meaning. For instance, a phrase in English like, dude, that is cool, if you translate it literally, would say something unwholesome that cowboys have to deal with, lacks temperature. But that is not the intent of somebody speaking that in their vernacular. They mean, hey, person, this is really neat, right? Well, this can be difficult to do in Bible translation, especially with a language that is full of graphic imagery to describe something. Hebrews do not say somebody was resolute. They say they set their face like flint towards something. They don't often say that somebody was angry. They say their nostrils flared. And that means angry. They speak in graphic imagery. Having said that, in Numbers 21, look at verse 6. NIV says, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Who's got the New American Standard there? Go ahead, read that loud. 21.6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people, so many people of Israel died. Which is it? Is it venomous snakes or is it fiery serpents? Well, NIV says when a Hebrew says fiery, what he means is venomous. Uh, could that be true? Could be true. But how interesting is it that this word is seraph? Fiery serpents is the way that seraph is translated in this instance. Now, is it snakes? Yes. Yes, Moses even made one. And he put it up and on a pole and people will heal, right? But there's an interesting connection in some way between the word seraph and snake because it appears like that many times over. 21.8 is the same way. Deuteronomy 8.15, recounting this instance, same way. Why don't we look at, you'll like this one, Isaiah 14.29. <laughs> A message that rests entirely upon linguistics is certainly not a message. I'll go ahead and tell you that up front. I hope to raise a couple questions here tonight. How many of you have been told that Satan was an archangel? Really, only two of you? How many of you have been told Satan was an archangel? You can raise your hand. Okay. We're not going to discuss that tonight. We are going to discuss that under a principle called satanic theories. Uh, but I do want you to get this. Are you in Isaiah 14? Yes. In Isaiah 14, let's read 
verses 28 together and 9. This oracle came in the year King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all of you Philistines, that the rod that struck you is broken. From the root of that snake will spring up a viper. Its fruit will be a darting venomous serpent. Somebody want to read that last part in the New American Standard? Come on, Abel, help us. Uh, 29. 29. Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you, because the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root a viper will come out, and its fruit will be a flying serpent. A flying serpent. How interesting is that? The word seraph is sometimes translated flying serpent. Sometimes fiery serpent. Sometimes flying serpent. In Isaiah 36, 30 verse 6, it literally says a fiery flying serpent. Although NIV did not translate it that way. If you're reading from a King James, it does. The word seraph has to do with a fiery flying serpent. And then the only time it's translated as seraph in all of your Bible, it has to do with a six-winged creature who hangs between heaven and earth and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and men who have unclean communication feel the need to get right in front of it. I have no point to make about the seraph tonight. Although, if all of your thoughts about the origin of some evil power had to do with the archangel what seems to fit the description a little better it's just a thought want to move on not just seraphs are mentioned in the bible something else is mentioned something called a cherub plural for cherub is cherubim every once in a while you'll see it is cherubs plural these are heavenly creatures that nowhere not at any time are ever called angels and yet they're there so when you close your eyes and you think about what's happening in the heavenlies, somewhere into the equation needs to come a seraph. Somewhere into the equation needs to come a cherub. Now, while the word for seraph is only mentioned seven times in all of the Bible, cherub shows up 91 times. Hebrews have a thought about seraphs. They speak about seraphs as the top of an angelic chain. Okay? Angelic meaning servants, not meaning angel. Okay? They speak about seraphs as if seraphs are the top of whatever hierarchy is there. I'm not telling you that. I'm simply suggesting that it's been said. Cherubs, however, have a different function. Who knows where the first cherubs appear in the Bible? And I'm going to try to say that correct. Cherubim. Why don't you go to turn to Genesis 3.24. By the way, nobody knows what cherubim means. There is nobody who has the courage to define it, but the closest Hebrew word to it is called cherub, not cherub, but cherub, and it means one who is sanctified or stands near. How interesting is that? In Genesis 3, I told you tonight we'd raise more questions than answers. It is not your normal preaching. There will be a point tonight. In Genesis 3, look at your 24th verse. 23rd verse. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, doesn't that imply the man didn't want to go? Yes. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim. Have you ever seen this depicted? Yeah. yeah. See a weird Viking looking dude with wings yeah. uh, with a flaming sword? Mm -hmm. Number one, there cannot be one. 
because cherubim is plural. So there's at least two. Number two, there is no description anywhere in all of the Word that looks anything like a normal human being. These guys have at least, at least four wings with hands under their wings. And in some instances are covered with eyes front, back, on top of wings, and under wings. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Let's see what the cherubim are first mentioned in Scriptures having done. And a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Why were the cherubim put there? To guard the way to the tree of life. If we're going to begin to derive an idea about who they are from what they do, which is a very Hebrew concept, let's look at all the things they do. Turn with me to Exodus 25 again. By the way, have you ever turned to Revelation and been very perplexed? My goodness, what are all of these things? I want you to notice that every one of these ideas that we speak about that will later show up in the book of Revelation has its roots in the Tanakh. And most specifically, the first five books of the Bible. Isn't it kind of idiotic to pick up the last chapter of a Grisham novel and expect to understand the plot? Yes. But what do Christians do? We might read a gospel and then turn to Revelation and hope to understand it all. This completely ignores the fact that there is a foundation that is laid of Hebrew thought, Hebrew revelation, Hebrew understanding, Hebrew imagery throughout all 66 books to bring you to that 66th book. But once you do this, Brandon was with me today while we were studying. He said, what is this? I said, well, what does it say in the Tanakh? We laughed about that for a minute. He goes, wow, that makes sense. And then he said, what is this? I said, well, Ezekiel said, that makes sense. And then what again is the thigh? And what are horns? And what is this in Scripture? And all of a sudden, a Bible student of just a few years understood something that commentaries have debated for years, but it could not be any easier if your understanding is the Tanakh. This is why we are working through the Word line by line and why I'm starting on Wednesday nights with expanding your idea of what it might be in the heavenlies. It's important as we move forward. Okay? Y'all ready? Yeah. Yeah. Exodus 25, look at verse 18. You there? Yeah. 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 There. 17. Make an atonement cover of pure gold. Two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you. Where would God meet with him? People say in the Holy of Holies. That is not what he said. He would meet with them there between the cherubs. Now in two out of two verses, what we have seen is that cherubs have something to do with entrance into the presence of God. In Exodus 26, you can flip a page. Look at your first verse. 
Make the tabernacle with ten, with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim worked into them by skilled craftsmen. He goes on to describe it. Do you know where this curtain was? It was a curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And what heavenly figure had to be embroidered into it? Cherubim. Cherubim spoke a message. A message that said, we represent the presence of God. He's right here on top of us, beside us, around us. You can come this far and no further. Moving forward to number 7. We're going to walk through a few of these and I cannot believe where the time has gone, but we're going to work at it. Number 7. Number 7. Tell me when you're there. There. Don't want to rush because I want you to get it. Number 7. You're going to love how long this chapter is. Look at the 89th verse. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak to the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim. God's presence was actually above the ark between the images of the cherubim. I'm not going to go through all of these scriptures with you, but I want you to know that 1 Samuel 4.4 says that God is actually enthroned between cherubim. One of my favorite all-time scriptures is 2 Samuel 22, the whole chapter, but for your sake, write down 11, the 11th verse, because it says, God mounted the cherubim and flew. What you begin to understand, and we will look at in a little more detail here in just a minute, is that the heavenly hierarchy consists of heavenly beings. Some of them are seraphs. They seem to have a special presence, a, a special uh, function associated with communicating God's holiness. Something else are called cherubs or cherubim. And they seem to always have to do with God's presence. In fact, the Hebrews believe that God was literally enthroned on top of cherubim. That much like ancient rulers were enthroned on top of platforms that moved with their people underneath, carrying them, that God Himself was enthroned on the wingtips of cherubim. And that in any direction that the Spirit of God moved, the cherubim moved. And that there were interlocking wheels, wheels within wheels that moved in any direction that God wanted them to move all at the same time, but it was cherubim that carried Him. God had what the Hebrews referred to as a chariot throne. And He was enthroned upon cherubim. Turn with me to Exodus t or Ezekiel 10. Yeah, when you think of God and you think of an old man with a beard and a big stick sitting on a golden European-style throne, understand that it is nowhere in the Hebrew depiction. Not at all. They saw God as a mobile, God of the universe, who very much had the ability to be anywhere by moving there, to see anything because everything heavenly was covered with eyes. Now, let me ask you, why would it have to be covered with eyes? If God knows everything, why would it have to be covered with eyes? When we say that God is omniscient, I would encourage you to reinterpret that in your mind as God has the ability to know anything He wants to know. Not that He does not have to find out, but that He has the ability to know. I'll show you four or five instances where He literally comes down to check out a situation. Uh, are you in Ezekiel? Yes. yes. Uh, 
I don't want to two-part this message, so I'm going to do my best with it, but we're going to have to skip a few things that I wanted to read and trust you to read them in your own time. In Ezekiel 10, I want to begin to describe to you a throne that he sees. I looked and I saw the likeness of a throne of sapphire. Wow, a whole throne of sapphire. Above the expanse that was over the clouds... I'm sorry. Above the expanse that was over the heads of cherubim. He sees a throne and an expanse, and the throne is above an expanse that is above cherubim. In the first and second chapter of Ezekiel, he said, man, that looks like ice above their heads. And he called them living creatures. He said, wow, they're living creatures and they have ice above their heads and there's a throne above that. Here, he calls them cherubim. Later on in the same chapter, he actually said, I now realize those living creatures are cherubim. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he got the revelation. He was calling them living creatures. Then he said, they're actually cherubim. Mm -hmm. Revelation, the fourth chapter, John's describing the throne of God above an expanse that he says to him looks like chrysolite. You can see how chrysolite and ice could be mistaken for each other. And there's a throne above it. What you begin to see is that there is a throne, there is an expanse, some kind of glass ceiling, if you will. Not the kind that keeps women out of the workplace, but a glass ceiling. Under the glass ceiling are cherubim, and God is enthroned upon them. Well, what else becomes interesting is as you look through this, you find out there are things above and below this expanse. And what you begin to start to see is a hierarchy developing that has to do with seraphs and cherubim and things that are above near the throne and things that are beneath and not near the throne. Now, one of the most interesting mentions of cherubim in all of the Bible is in Ezekiel 28. But we're going to cover it in near excruciating detail when we cover satanic theories. Isn't it interesting that people call Satan Lucifer? means morning star, a title also given to Jesus. The address of the person that is being spoken to happens to be the king of Tyre. He's called a man about 12 times in that one passage. Man. But there is a passage in the scripture that says, wow, you were a garden chariot. You were found on the holy mountain in the garden of Eden until I found wickedness in you. Nobody ascribes that one to Satan. I, I can't figure out why. Uh, Oh, it's because he's supposed to be an archangel, not a cherub. You think that maybe an incorrect understanding in one area could cause more incorrect understandings in other areas? My whole goal in Christian life has been to step back from what has been told us and say, what is real? And so my very first Bible is filled with question marks. If this is true, how could this be true? Say, so, oh, well, Eric, they're all the same thing. Before this is over, before we cover angels and accusers, I don't think you'll be able to say that. How many have you heard all your life that angels have wings? Mm -hmm. Nowhere in the Bible is an angel, something called an angel, presented with wings. Nowhere. They are described as looking like men. Cherubs have wings. Seraphs have wings. You argue about how many. One time they have four, another time they have six. Some say they're the same thing. By the way, uh, if we describe something that had web feet and a bill, could you say it was a duck? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you describe something that had, I don't know, this strange fur that beaded like uh, beaded water off of it and had a flat tail that slapped the water, could you say it was a beaver? Mm -hmm. What if it was a platypus? Sometimes when we're describing heavenly things, we're trying to cram them all into this category or this category and we're ignoring the fact that there may be a whole lot more categories than you ever possibly considered. 
Is life on earth complex? Yes. yes. Kingdom, phylum, genus, class, order, species. I, I mean, how many are there? Why would you think that in God's domain it's any less complex? There may be a whole hierarchy there we haven't considered. Many similarities exist between living creatures, cherubim, and seraphim. Having said that, there are some irreconcilable differences. The descriptions of their faces, all of those things, it's very reasonable to assume that they're all similar in family. It is not at all reasonable to say they're all the same thing. In fact, there is no way to do that if you line up their actual definitions. I want to move on to some other things. Daniel 7 describes a throne. Describes a man on the throne with white hair, rivers of fire, wheels blazing. Sounds like we're describing the same chariot throne. Mm -hmm. By the way, when John saw Jesus, blazing eyes, white hair, rivers of fire, you know, this is all one description trying to say there is now a man on that throne. Somebody who has ascended past the chrysolite expanse, past the ice expanse, past all of the heavenly beings, and there is a human being on that throne. Uh, let's go to the 24 elders. I cannot believe the time. We got lots of babies here tonight, Jennifer? Yeah? Okay. So, uh, trying to decide just how big of a beating I'm going to get. Turn with me to Revelation 4. On top of Revelation 4, is there a title? The Throne in Heaven. Let me ask you something. I, I know that our time is very important. I don't, uh, don't want to keep you to the point where you're all falling asleep. I, I certainly don't. But have you heard this stuff talked about in church much? No. You ever hear it preached about on TV? No. How about the radio? No. Then it might be worth stretching just a little bit, huh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My wife is giving me the... Oh, amen. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emblem encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne were seven lamps that were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. We're going to describe living Creatures. These living creatures happen to have six wings but perform the function of a cherubim. <laughs> Amazing. Not four wings, six. I say all of this to bring us to 24 elders. These 24 elders are never called men. Nowhere in the Bible. In fact, they're existent at a time when John says, uh, Sir, what's going on down there? He said, You don't know? These people are the ones that are dying and coming out of the tribulation. He didn't speak about himself like a man. He didn't speak about him like he was uh, part of Adam's existence. These 24 elders are mentioned in Revelation 4. Revelation 5. 
Revelation 7, Revelation 11, 14, and 19. Look at 7, 13. We're going to read that one. I had intended to read you all of these, but we don't have time. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who came out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night. Speaking of people who had been martyred during the tribulation being before the throne, but you know who was there before they were? 24 elders. My point here is that there are seraphs, there are cherubs, there are elders, there's a throne and a sea of glass. If you begin to write these things down in the order in which they appear in the Word, and then try to define them based on the function that you see, it looks to me, and I'm not preaching this as doctrine, I'm just telling you, it looks to me like if you had to assign a flow chart to it, seraphs have to do with communication between the heavens and the earth. And as their name seems to suggest, they are burning fiery ones because they are right by God. The cherubs protect His presence and He is enthroned upon them. In between those two figures are something called 24 elders. Elders of what? You'll have to find out because I have no idea. Their origin is not explained in the Word. I'll tell you this. You'll have a hard time proving they're a descendant of Adam because they're there from the beginning. They're right there before God's throne. Everything else that is described in the Bible has to do with ranks and orders of angels and messengers. And they all seem to fall beneath that. There is a heavenly hierarchy in the Bible. I have not discussed with you the angel of the Lord, the angel of His presence. I have not discussed with you angels in general. Or something simply called the messenger of God. How about animals? Horses that Jesus returns on. Eagles that speak. How about locusts that have heads of horses? The power of speech and are very much personified in the Bible. How about the prince of Persia and Greece? Neither called angels nor anything else, simply called princes. How about a star that fell from heaven but is given a key and uses it and speaks? How about horses and riders in the heavenlies or chariots of fire in the heavenlies? Have any of these things been in your conception anywhere? How about a mountain? This described over and over and over as a mountain in God's presence. Bowls, censers, special robes. How about armies or stones that have eyes all over them? Perhaps we have simplified this thing way too much and you could spend a lifetime exploring what is in the heavenly hierarchy. Now there is one guy that I will not rush through, but I am going to wrap it up, <laughs> that has a unique role in the heavenly hierarchy. Bible scholars have tried very hard simply to make him a regular king, no different than anybody else, a king in a place called Salem, peace. Now, of course, his name, Melchizedek, is a compound word of Melech, which is king, like uh, Melechodon, king of the world, except his name means king of righteousness. So if you had to associate two words with this guy, it would be the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He appears ten times in all of the Scripture. Ten. Ten. That's not exactly obscure. Ten times, right? In Genesis 14 and 18, Abraham pays him a tithe of all that he has. 
we should read Psalm 110. Let's see hear what David says about it. In Psalm 110, a very curious statement appears. And after this, we'll be in the book of Hebrews. And I will try to close in the next ten minutes after covering this. <laughs> Might need a little help getting from the pulpit to the car. <laughs> in Psalm 110... Wow, it's hard not to read this whole thing. So we're going to start in one. Uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What was man put on the planet for? To bring it into subjection. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, if you're a human being and you failed at your task to bring the earth into subjection, but God sent you a Lord, an owner and controller, and He was going to do it for you, then you could say the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Do you understand how this is Jesus and the Father? Yes. Mm -hmm. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, the mountain of the Lord's brightness. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, the Father said to Jesus, the Lord said to my Lord, you will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. If Melchizedek was an earthly king, as some people have said, that is a pretty strange statement. You know, Jesus, you're going to be a cool guy. You will get to be like this Canaanite king. Anybody here really want to buy that? I can't. I'm telling you, right now, I can't. I've been trying to be persuaded for years. I can't. Hebrews picks this theme up and says, Jesus did not descend from any priestly tribe on earth. He is not a descendant of Aaron. He is not a descendant of Levi. He is, however, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, uh, a pretty fascinating thing uh, about this is Melchizedek is said to have no beginning and no end. No father, no mother, no genealogy. This takes him out of the human realm, in my opinion. Some have tried to make this simply a literary device, saying those things were not important. That absolutely ignores the point. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well... This ought to raise an enormous question for you. There is a temple or a tabernacle there. There is a priesthood there. What we see on earth is a shadow and a copy of something that is there. If Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, what does that mean? If there's an order of Melchizedek, what does that mean? There is a heavenly priesthood. But Jesus is above it is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, why did the heavens need a priesthood? Why? Did, do you think that that came into being the moment that Adam sinned? When was it created? How was it created? Apparently, there was a problem a long time before Adam was ever here. If there needed to be a temple, an altar, and a priesthood. What did priests do? They mediate between God and man and they make atoning sacrifices. What did that seraph do for Isaiah? 
He came and atoned for him. Almost like he had done things like that before. There is a heavenly hierarchy that is largely ignored among Christians. Now, let me console you with something. First, let me give you a uh, list of scriptures for Melchizedek because you really should read about him. You need to read Genesis 14, verse 18. Psalm 110, verse 4. Hebrews 5, verses 6 and 10. Hebrews 6, for sure, verse 20. And 100% all of, even if it kills you, Hebrews 7. Because the whole point of Hebrews is, guys, you're looking at a shadow and a copy of something on earth. You see it, and it's wonderful, and you glory in it. But it's just something that exists in reality in heaven. And Jesus is the master. He is the supreme. He is the head of everything that is in heaven. Turn with me then to Hebrews 1. We're going to close with a couple of scriptures here from Hebrews and maybe I'll squeeze in one from Colossians or Ephesians. I'm only four minutes into my ten minute extension. Hebrews what? I'm a salesman. I've always had a problem with math, Jeff. We're going to close, I promise. <laughs> Hebrews 1. We're going to be in Hebrews 1. Understand something. I know tonight is a strange topic. I know it's not rah, rah, Jesus is great, get saved, devil's bad. I get that. What I am trying to do is give you an idea that we may have oversimplified some things in the heavenlies. And what we are coming to, what we are coming to is all of this was derived from lots of speech in the church arguing about the existence of demons and angels and the origin of Satan. I love those kind of conversations. One of the reasons that I love them is because the average Christian has no answer for them. None. Because their knowledge of the Word is like the shallow end of the baby pool. But the more we dig in the Word, the more a picture starts to come complete. And more often than not, you learn something and go, oh my God, but that opens up this whole... And then you learn something else and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it leaves you with one conclusion. God is way too big to be defined by the denomination's nursery school Sunday school lessons. It does not work. He's huge. And He says something about us. Go to Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things whether seraphim or cherubim or elders or thrones or angels or archangels or horses or locusts, He is the heir of it all. And through whom He made the universe. Made everything. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven so he became as much superior to the angels as the name or function he has inherited is superior to theirs. Whatever exists among the servants of God, Jesus is superior to it. If you read this whole chapter, he lays out how he's superior to it. He is a son. He is just like God. In Hebrews 2.8, he says something that I cannot pass up before changing the book. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. And in putting everything under his feet, 
In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. <clears throat> Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he could taste death for every one of us. Whatever there is in the heavens or on the earth, or as the Bible says, under the earth, it will all be made subject to Jesus. You know what the very, very good news about that is? You are in Jesus. This is how Paul can say with confidence, you will judge angels. It's how he can shame someone for not being able to settle the dispute, saying, don't you know you are going to judge angels? There is nothing created in the heavens, on the earth, or under the earth that Jesus does not have complete supremacy over. Colossians 1 makes that point abundantly clear. And you are in Jesus. Yes. When we say Jesus Christ, that is a way of saying Jesus, the anointed one. You know what another way to say anointed one is? The collection of anointed ones form the anointed one. The body of Christ, God's ruling agent on the earth with all things subject to it. So, does it matter whether Satan was an archangel? or a seraph, or a cherubim, or a puppy dog. It really doesn't. He is made to be beneath you and beneath Christ. Now I'm going to offer you some things as we go to help you better understand what has happened in the heavens. But the entire point is, whatever there is, your job is to bring it into subjection to God's will. Yes. This is why you were put here originally. Where we fail... Christ succeeds and we are in Christ. Do you understand the direction of our study now? Okay. If you don't have questions about that, I'd be really surprised. But I'm vastly out of time. So uh, see me during the week. Ask me Monday nights. You can ask me before we start next week if you want. My point again was not to teach you what seraphs do and what cherubs do. It was to show you that there is a multiplicity of things but Jesus is the head of them all, and you are in Jesus. But it would be interesting to contemplate just what there is a priesthood doing there and where Jesus offered his blood. Was it in a tabernacle on earth? It was not. So where was it? And why? So, uh, y'all want to pray? Yes. Are you thoroughly confused? No. No? Yes, a little bit? This kind of thing is supposed to promote study. That's why I'm doing it. I recognize for a church it's dangerous to even open these topics. And I don't care. So y'all stand your feet. We'll pray. <laughs>